Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March 30th, 2022. Uh, last weekend, we did a show about Oxford uh, with the uh, Buenos Aires-based mathematician, uh, Guillermo Martinez. Um, he has a new book out, uh, The Oxford Brotherhood, which is a follow-up to his uh, best-selling murder mystery, uh, The Oxford Murders, which was also made into a movie. Um, the Oxford Brothers is a kind of dreamy book about the dreamiest of characters, Lewis Carroll, the author, of course, of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, one of the great dreamy fables of 19th century English literature, poetic, imaginary. Uh, but the book itself focuses on a, a, a perhaps a more troublingly um, poetic relationship between Carol and a young woman, or a young girl, actually, Alice Liddell, a, a source of great controversy. Uh, Oxford has always been a place, I guess, of wonderland, of dreaminess. And we're talking once again as uh, of Oxford today as a stage for dreams, imagination, and perhaps nightmares. My, uh, my guest is Daisy Dunn, a very distinguished English classicist. She has a wonderful new book out. It's out today in the UK. It's called Not Far From Brideshead, Oxford Between the Wars. Uh, and Oxford, not too distant, I guess, from uh, Lewis Carroll's Oxford. Uh, Daisy is joining us from southwest London. Uh, a rainy southwest London, Daisy. It's a bit in and out today, I have to say. We had a sort of a bit of spring and now it's kind of disappeared again. So I bet it never rains in Oxford, does it, Daisy? <laughs> in Oxford, it's either beautiful or it absolutely pours, which is probably quite metaphorical. Yeah, in what way? Why, why, why is uh, that metaphorical? What is it about Oxford that makes it either a dream or a nightmare? I think Oxford's one of those places where everything feels very concentrated. Um, I was a student there in the 2000s, and we used to speak about Oxford being the Oxford bubble. We'd say we're entering the Oxford bubble, and you feel almost you're in a world of its own where sort of little sort of trivial things can be magnified out of all proportion. And in some ways, that's fantastic. And I think that's how a lot of excellent scholarship gets made. You know, you're very, very focused on a small area. Uh, in other ways, it becomes almost slightly claustrophobic, I think, for some people. So it has both sides to it. What is it about the bells of Oxford, Daisy? You begin this wonderful book with a description of you as an undergraduate at Oxford University, and you were fearful that these incessant bells would keep you awake. Uh, eventually you went to sleep, but um, <laughs> what, what is the acoustic of Oxford? What is the most striking, is, is that your most striking memory of the bells? It was certainly my first memory. Uh, I went up in 2005, I was 18 years old. I hadn't really been away from home for any kind of long period of time before. And suddenly I'm in this his historical, city is all incredibly beautiful but the one thing that I just 
notice straight away, especially at bedtime with the bells, because they don't stop. They go all night through. And I was living at St Hilda's College opposite Magdalen Tower. So the bell tower is ringing and ringing and ringing. And I just thought I'm never, ever going to be able to get to sleep in the city. And certainly I wasn't alone in that. One of the uh, figures I was writing about in my book was Henry Green, who is a, a great novelist. He's kind of, I think, uh, underestimated really today. He's not read as much as he should be. And he said the same. Uh, he said, oh my goodness, these bells are driving me absolutely crazy and I've got to get out of this city. But I think after a while you get to become quite used to them and they become your sort of personal clocks in a way. No one needs a watch when you're living in Oxford because you just know what time it is because the bells are just so reliable. And you did get some sleep. You become a very distinguished classicist. Um, this new book isn't formal classical literature, although there's a lot of the classics in it. Not Far From Brideshead, of course, brings to mind and directly references the, the great novel by Evelyn Waugh, Brideshead Revisited, uh, one of the most uh, brilliant of all English comic historical novels. When I'm thinking about your book, Daisy, Not Far From Brideshead, of course, it's a lovely title because uh, the not far is uh, the key words in that, not far. So not exactly Brideshead, is it? Or Oxford Between the, the Wars wasn't exactly Brideshead. It wasn't the Oxford of Evelyn Waugh's imagination. I think it's it's a it's a title sort of pondered for a long time because I think a bride's head revisited obviously summons a lot of memories and feelings and images in a lot of people's minds. It's a fantastic novel, and I think people sort of know or think they know Oxford through that book. And I think the reality is sometimes quite different from that portrayed by Evelyn Waugh. There are certainly elements he actually drew on his own experience as an undergraduate. He went up in 1922. He met lots of uh, very, very sort of ebullient uh, characters and drew on them uh, in his novel. But at the same time, there's a kind of slightly uneasy underbelly to the place. And that's something I kind of wanted to try and get at in my narrative. So it's like Brideshead in some ways, it's very far from Brideshead in other ways. And I'm, as you said, I'm a classicist. I was drawn immediately to these figures who were classical dons in the city. And so there's sort of references to classical literature throughout because one of these classical dons actually inspired the character of Mr. Sam Grass in Brideshead Revisited. So that was one of the, my sort of starting points uh, for, for the book. And it kind of branched out because these people were actually responsible for being tutors and friends and mentors to some of the greatest thinkers and writers of the early, early 20th century. So everyone from sort of Virginia Woolf to uh, John Betjeman, um, Louis McNeese, W.H. Auden, a huge range of characters all were associated with this group of people. Yeah, it's a remarkable story. Um, not far from Oxford, uh, not far from, I was going to say not far from Oxford, it's not far from Brideshead, Oxford between the wars. Of course, we know what wars you're talking about, Daisy. Uh, there's a war going on right now, but it isn't, and it'll never be remembered, perhaps outside the Ukraine, as the war. The two wars you're talking about are the First and Second World Wars. What was it about these wars that have made them, Daisy, the wars, particularly in the context of Oxford? You begin your book with the decimation, the, the intellectual, physical, catastrophically generational 
devastation of the First World War on the English elite, and you end the book on the brink of the Second World War, which would bring devastation on Europe and the United Kingdom, less perhaps on Oxford than the First World War. Just tell me what, for you, the significance of Between the Wars is before we actually get to the narrative in the book. Well, I think when you're focusing on a small place like Oxford, it gives you a particular lens through which to, to look at a much bigger picture. And some of the First World War had an absolutely devastating impact upon Oxford as a city and upon Oxford as a university. I mean, we had there were about 3,000 students and 100 graduates in 1914 studying there. By 1916, there were only 550. And sort of overall, by the end of the Great War, uh, a fifth of those who were studying at Oxford and alumni of Oxford would be killed in that war. So it, it had you know, a devastating effect on, on, on Oxford and it could never be forgotten. And I think the fact that so many people who were, were fighting on the front, there, I've got sort of several characters coming straight from the trenches and enrolling as students at the university. I mean, that contrast could not have been greater. And as a writer, that's what I was interested in. I was interested in the fact that they've been through this absolute hell. And then they're presented with a place which looks like heaven on earth. You know, it, it seems an Arcadia in so many, many ways. And how do you actually sort of adjust to that sort of mentally? How do you go from being in the trenches to, to sort of sitting in lecture rooms and sort of punting across the river? I mean, you don't necessarily. And that's part of the story I wanted to tell. And I think in itself, that was a, a difficult transition for people to make and just about they kind of get used to it and it's the great sort of roaring 20s or the parties and things that we like to think about in that era and then you get to the 30s and suddenly there's an awareness that something could happen again and that history might repeat itself and that they're heading in a, a direction which seems horribly familiar so that's what that period really really meant to me it's a kind of I describe it as a, as a sliver of light uh, between sort of two two clouds really of darkness it's a slither of, of, of light, and uh, it's a wonderful description of, of Oxford between the wars, Daisy, because rather than focusing broadly or on a single writer like uh, Evelyn War, you focus on three, three of perhaps the most distinguished classicists at Oxford at that time. Uh, Morris Barra, who's perhaps the most glittering, although perhaps less least well-known of the three, uh, Gilbert Murray um, and uh, E.R. Dodds. Um, before we get on to Murray, Barra and Dodds, what was the role of the classics in, in the Oxford of the interwar period? You, you note in the book that in intellectual terms, it still remained central. For most people, even if you were majoring in English, you had to take classes in Greek and Latin. Yeah, it, it was It was seen, it was actually described in the Oxford Student Handbook, uh, which was produced at the time as the, the premier school in dignity and importance. So it sounds very sort of puffed up, um, but people took it very, very seriously at the time. And as you say, people who were studying all kinds of other subjects actually had to have some grounding in Latin and Greek. It was seen as absolutely central to education, part of the, sort of the British education system at the time. And 
people didn't necessarily take to it immediately. Um, certainly people struggled with some of the, the Greek, for example. But I think at the same time, people who studied it had, um, they were respected. And as a subject, it kind of had more and more resonance as time went on, because particularly looking at sort of Nazi Germany, you have under the Third Reich, uh, Hitler sort of picking up elements of, of ancient Sparta and sort of Greek culture and Greek sculptures and sort of upholding these as examples to sort of emulate, you know, as part of this sort of new vision for uh, his, his kind of Aryan vision. So a lot of that was being um, contorted, a lot of the classical past was being subverted and sort of written in the wrong way. So for that reason alone, classical education was actually really important. People needed to know what the classics looked like in order to know when it was being subverted and when it was being sort of abused. So it did, it did um, hold an important place in culture um, of Britain at that time, and I think rightly so. Daisy, you're perhaps more of a scholar of Rome than of Greece. Uh, one of your best-known books, your last book, In the Shadow of Vesuvius, a life, a life of Pliny. You also wrote a very well-received book on the Roman uh, poet Catullus. Um, in terms of, though, Rome and Greece, did the Oxford of, of the early 20th century, did it think of itself more in terms of of Greece than of Rome. Christopher Hitchens famously, of course, said that um, Britain was Britain was Greece uh, to America's Rome, given its size and perhaps intellectual vitality. Was the Oxford of the interwar periods, was it biased towards Greece over Rome or was all the classics uh, embraced in the same way? Certainly, both the Greek side and the Latin side were embraced and seen as very important. I think what you say is completely true. I think um, there's always going to be an affinity between Rome and America in particular, looking at the founding fathers, or looking at Cicero and looking at late Republican Rome as examples, as they, you know, as things were established. But in, in Oxford, they were more and more keen in this period on the plays, the Greek tragedies. So for that reason, I mean, I think ancient Greece always sort of seems to have captivated people, it certainly did me as a student when you actually get to, to read these plays in, in the original and more and more of them were being staged in English translation for the first time in the early, early 20th century and people like Gilbert Murray were translating them for everyone to read for the first time. So they were suddenly becoming uh, things which were sort of spoken about a lot more widely and not just in kind of scholarly circles. What is it about British people that make them such great classicists. We've had so many shows. We had the the scholar Armand Dangor on about what ancient Greeks can teach us about innovation. We had Paul Cartledge, a Cambridge professor, on talking uh, about uh, the forgotten Greek city of Thebes and its centrality. We've had Roderick Beaton on with his wonderful history biography of a modern nation, Greece, which is very much rooted in antiquity, uh, talking about the Greek revolution of 1821. Um, we've had, uh, and not just men, we've had Mary Beard, another Cambridge classicist on talking about what we can learn from images of Roman autocrats. What is it about British education that even today lends itself to the study of antiquity? Well, one thing, I mean, listing those people, so 
all of us know each other for a start. It is quite a sort of tight community in some ways. And I think that actually helps and gives it um, sort of a lot of grounding. And, and that kind of begins from, from school level. I mean, we, I think the fact that, you know, Romans came over to Britain, we with all these sort of um, villas. Do, do you talk to each other in Latin and Greek? Um, <laughs> that's such a nice idea. We don't, we don't talk to each other. Although, you know, occasionally we're dropping each other emails, you know, you might sort of put a, a quote or something from a, a Greek tragedy in or a, a bit of Cicero or something. Um, but no, we're very much uh, speaking English to each other. But I think, you know, it, it seems, it feels part of the fabric of Britain, you know, going to all these places, going to school trips. We're so close to, to Italy and to Greece. Most of us will have traveled at some point and seen something which has been touched by the Greeks and Romans. And that starts at school level. And I think once you've got that kind of cultural connection, the languages follow. And then if you take the languages, you're almost there. You know, I think for, for Almost, me, I... yeah. Although most of us, uh, Daisy, weren't very good at those kind of languages. It's certainly, um, it, it's quite forbidding unless you're good at it, isn't it? it? It can be, but I'd say more and more people are discovering classics without having to have the languages. So classical civilization is a subject which you do not require Greek or Latin to study and people are taking that at university and doing, you know, remarkable things with it. I mean, I, I've personally, I, I love languages, so that's why I went down that route. But it shouldn't be a reason to stop you from, you know, delving into some of this wonderful literature because most of it is available in translation now. That is the point. Everything is a lot more accessible now than it was 100 years ago even. So, you know. Do you really I, believe that, Daisy? I do really believe that. I do really believe that. I think what's damaging is this connection which has been drawn between classics and elitism. I think that's been hugely damaging. I think the fact that a lot of politicians certainly in this country have studied classics, a lot of prime ministers have read classics, and that connection has been sort of fortified over time. And I think a lot there are a lot of kind of uh, classical educational charities and things out there at the moment trying to, to break down that connection and show that actually this connection isn't really real, you know, just because someone studied something. Yeah, although I, I wonder, some people might read your your wonderful new book, Not Far From Brideshead, Oxford Between the Wars, which is a, a narrative of, 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 glitter, uh, of, of glittering um, intellectuals and, 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 and intellect, and perhaps suggest that it could be a kind of defense of elitism. Uh, maybe we'll come to that after the break. Uh, we're talking with Daisy Dunn, the author of Not Far From Brideshead, a, a wonderfully original biography of Oxford between the, the wars, focusing on three of the university's leading classicists. Um, we're going to take a short break now, Daisy, and afterwards I want to talk specifically about those classicists. I want to want you to tell our audience who they were and why they were so remarkable. We'll be back in, uh, in 60 seconds uh, with Daisy Dunn, the author of Not Far From Brideshead. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keen On show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keen On show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. 
And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Kino. We are back with Daisy Dunn, uh, the author of Not Far From Brideshead, a wonderfully original biography of Oxford between the wars. Um, it's a book that focuses on three of the university's greatest classicists between the wars, Maurice Barra, uh, Gilbert Murray, and uh, E.R. Dodds. Um, uh, Daisy, uh, uh, Daisy, um, Barra is the most remarkable, to me at least. He could have walked straight out of a, a war novel. Um, and as you say, he was the inspiration in part for one of the characters, perhaps arguably in Brideshead. What was it about Barra that makes him such a remarkable character? Because he wasn't perhaps the most famous classicist. But in terms of his life, his conversational ability, his wit, his acerbity, his general liveliness. He was a remarkable character, wasn't he? He was. And he's, he's been described as one of the greatest wits of the 20th century. Um, uh, he's, he's sort of known for his sort of bon mot. He say things like, um, you know, someone just gave me uh, the warm shoulder or I've just had a, a long and interesting silence with someone who couldn't speak a word of English. And um, so sort of these wonderful tales also told of him in Oxford. Uh, supposedly there's a, there was a male-only bathing site called Parsons Pleasure in Oxford. And uh, supposedly a group of ladies stumbled upon him, some other men while they were bathing. And every other man immediately uh, covered their genitals, but he covered his face, knowing that he was a sort of <laughs> such a well-known figure around Oxford in which part of him would be immediately recognisable to other people people. So there are all these stories circulated about him because he was larger than life. He was um you know, he was he was a talented classicist, um, but he was kind of almost better known for being a socialite and for being remarkably outgoing and unafraid to sort of speak his mind and, and say what he wanted to say. He kind of founded something he called the the immoral front, um, which was kind of a very sort of anti-establishment little group. He, uh, in a way, brings to mind Isaiah Berlin. Um, we did an interview with Michael Ignatiev at the weekend, the biographer of Berlin. Again, another great wit and socialite. There was an enormously intense social life in the Oxford of, of, of this period. I guess there still is, but particularly at that period, wasn't there? 
There was, I, I think, you know, people like um, Morris Barrow always having these fantastic dinner parties in their rooms, people with, with groups of students. That doesn't really happen so much now. I think everyone eats together in hall instead. But there were lots of, sort of private dinners, people going off to the theatre, the, the college balls where tutors and students would be sort of, you know, partying together. And that kind of side of, of, of Brideshead it does kind of shine through the sources when you read the letters and you, you hear the descriptions of uh, the social side of Oxford you can see a lot of that that colour and that celebration that real sense of release and I think you also have the kind of the uglier side of you have a lot of the sort of the Bullingdon Club the notorious Bullingdon, Bullingdon Club uh, which was initially a, a dining club and uh, sort of notorious really partly through uh, war's other novel decline and fall uh, where you have people behaving incredibly badly, smashing up each other's bedrooms, um, and then sort of presenting a, a check uh, to cover the damage, as if that will sort of make everything okay again. And you have a sort of a lot of that happening at the same time. And I think you know it's obviously unforgivable, but I think in some ways more understandable today um, than it is sort of in in, in our. Yeah, it strikes me that um, Barrow was really shaped by the First World War. Is this photograph on Wikipedia for people watching? features Morris Barra being shown a computer in 1965. We need a caption. God knows what Morris Barra would have thought of a computer. And God knows what he would think of our age today. But it, it strikes me that Barra, who grew up in China, was very much shaped by the First World War. Um, Gilbert Murray grew up in Australia, Sydney, Australia, um, emigrated to the UK uh, in 1891. And then E.R. Dodds uh, grew up um, in, uh, in the provinces of, of Ireland. Um, it strikes me that all these men came from the edge. Uh, and that's what was and perhaps still remains remarkable about Oxford is it aggregates people of enormous abilities from many different backgrounds and geographies and brings them together for this very intense period of their lives, if they're a student or I guess as a faculty. Is that fair? I think that's fair. And that's also, I mean, what I would say sort of in response to what we were saying earlier, I mean, I, I don't believe that this book is kind of focused on uh, an elite circle because if you look at what these people are doing, they're not all from, you know, fantastic You could be naughty though, Daisy, and, 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 and argue in defence of elitism. I mean, I'm sure if, if we could resurrect... Morris Barrow, he would defend elitism today, wouldn't he? Well, I think it's, it's, it depends what you mean by it. I and mean, I think elitism in, in intellectually can be a, a brilliant thing. Um, but if we're talking about, you know, classics being the preserve of a certain group of people who went to a certain group of schools, that's obviously not such a good thing. Because if you look at what Gilbert Murray, for example, was doing, he was opening the subject up to as many people as possible. He's one who set up the home library of education to bring kind of a university level education to make it available to everybody, regardless of where they were in the country, they didn't actually have, have to physically go to university. The, the idea was that you could study all these things at home. And he was bringing classics to to women for the first time. I mean, you know, women were incredibly sidelined um, for for much this period. And what I'm trying to do in the book a lot is to show how they're sort of fighting through it and making their voices heard in what is still a very very male heavy environment. Um, they get degrees for the first time in 1920 and then by 1927 there's a quota to try and limit the number of them allowed to actually study at Oxford. Uh, so you know, there's a lot going on in a, in a period. So it's a great period of, of change uh, and flux and I think that's why it's it's so interesting. So if um, 
if Barrow was the, the sparkling conversationalist, the great wit, and Gilbert Murray was the social reformer, E.R. Dodd, perhaps, and, and this photo of him looks rather dour, E.R. Dodd was the greatest of the scholars, and perhaps his intellectual legacy is much more significant than either uh, Barra uh, or um, or Murray today. Is that fair? Tell me a little bit about Eric Robertson Dodds, a remarkable scholar, if not perhaps a remarkable man, although maybe you would disagree. I would say I would agree that out of those three, he has certainly, um, he stood the test of time. His work has stood the, the test of time. People still read his great magnum opus, um, The Greeks and the Irrational. Um, but it's sort of in, in, in defense of him as a man, that grew out of his sort of personal interest. The thing about Dodds, he grew up uh, in Ireland. He was a great rebel. He was the son of two head teachers and he was thrown out of school for bad behavior. And I think yeah. psychologically gross, makes uh, He was expelled for gross, studied and sustained insolence. That was quite an achievement. That was quite an achievement. Um, that was specifically towards the headmaster as well. And you can kind of understand as a son of two head teachers why that would follow. Uh, and he went out to Oxford and that, that, he, that, that kind of followed him. You know, he he befriended T.S. Eliot. He was actually partnered with him for his tutorials. So we kind of get great insight into T.S. Eliot as a young man through the eyes of Dodds. But Dodds was there and he was sort of writing poetry and he was taking drugs and he was nearly sent down for his drug taking. And he was absolutely fascinated by seances and talking to the dead and hypnotism and, and all that kind of thing. And that actually inspired his scholarship. So his great work, The Greeks and the Irrational, is driven by his interest in uh, hypnotism and, you know, seances and all these things that he was interested in. And that's part of the reason that he started experimenting with drugs to see whether they could help him to talk to people on the other side. So he I think- was, um, Dodd was a friend of uh, Huxley, wasn't he? Aldous Huxley? He was. He was a friend. So he he was in a, a poetic group um, with him as well at Oxford. So you have a, a, a sort of a small group of them there during the First World War. Dodds was a great pacifist as well. He refused to fight uh, for the king country and that kind of landed him in hot water. It wasn't seen to be the thing to do. What were the relations between Dodds, Murray and Barrow? Were they friendly? Were they in competition with one another or simultaneously both? Uh, my book's been described as a story of high table malice. And I would say uh, the relationship between... No murders, two. though. Not like uh, the Oxford Brotherhood, no, right? But close enough. I was I was watching uh, the, the book of your talk um, about the... Um, with the Oxford, the Oxford murders and the Oxford Brotherhood. It's really interesting. I mean, Oxford's one of those places that really continues to inspire so many writers. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that people do, because it is so small, people get into disputes and there are spats all over the place. So at the centre of my narrative, there's a, a massive falling out between these three characters and it kind of divides Oxford in two. Dodds was a great friend of many of the great poets. He was a literary executive of Louis McNeese. He was friends with W.H. Auden, T.S. Eliot, W.B. Yeats, all these great poets. The other side, Barrow was friends with sort of the more kind of socialite side, and he had his own friends in the university. And um, Gilbert Murray kind of fostered Maurice Barrow in many ways to be his kind of protege. Um, but then when it came to Murray retiring, there was a great question as to whether his job would be going to, to Barrow or to someone else. It eventually went to Dodds, and that was a huge shock 
and it sent shockwaves through the university instead of my book is part of the story about what happens and it gets quite dirty. So it is in a sense an Oxford murder or an academic murder. Um, Daisy, you mentioned earlier, and I, I don't think this is an exaggeration, some of the most brilliant minds of certainly of the 20th century, if not in history, congregated around these men, the, the poets, Auden, T.S. Eliot, Huxley, Berlin. Yeah. What do you think in intellectual terms, if you could summarize, was there an intellectual achievement of Oxford between the wars, uh, uh, let alone uh, war, of course, whose um, who's, who's, who's book, uh, whose classic, The Brideshead Revisited, is perhaps the greatest, at least fictional legacy of this period. Can one summarize an intellectual legacy, not just for the classicists, but amongst the poets, the political philosophers, the historians, and indeed the dystopians like Aldous Huxley? with his interest in drugs and psychedelics? I think first and foremost, it was survival. And I mean that not not literally. I mean, having come out of the First World War period and gone to Oxford, there was a sense that people were kind of given a new lease of life and a new opportunity to do something. And that was great. And some people were able to take that, but it wasn't easy. and. A lot of, kind of what I've got sort of simmering beneath my narrative is the difficulty that people had to overcome. I mean, a lot of people were suffering from, you know, shell shock and mm. all kind of psychological effects, you know, whether they were actually fighting or sort of just part of it or they knew people who were affected by it. So actually coming out of that and being able to do something creative, I feel like that is an achievement in itself. And, you know, people obviously responded to this in, in different ways and whether they were writing poetry or they were writing memoir or works of history. It doesn't, that doesn't have to be sort of some kind of mutual thread connecting all of these. They were all connected in so far as they've all come out of the same period and they've been uh, in Oxford, they've been through an experience in itself. So I'd say it, it, it's more that than it being any kind of one specific um, element that, that comes from out of the war. We can include all these famous people who went to Oxford, a couple of very famous people who didn't go, who one might imagine could have, or perhaps even should have, was Winston Churchill and Neville Chamberlain, the two characters involved in the late 30 drama of British relations with Nazi Germany, the catastrophe of Munich, appeasement, and then the Second World War. Um, in terms of the reappearance of reality after the wonderland of the interwar period of, of Churchill and Chamberlain and the rise of Nazism. Uh, who was the most realistic out of your threesome of Murray, Barra and Dodds of this catastrophic rise of fascism, the destruction, not just of the European world and of the Oxford world, but perhaps of the civilized world entirely? Well, Gilbert Murray was the one who was closest to it. He was one of the founding members of the League of Nations and the League of Nations Union. Uh, so he was meeting up with, you know, all these sort of world leaders really um, on a regular basis. And he was confident, I think probably too idealistic that peace would prevail, that they'd, you know, managed to, to build something which would, you know, make the First World War, the war to end all wars. And I think it was really relatively late that he realised that that wasn't going to be the case. Um, Morris Bower, having seen service in the First World War, 
was, I think, more realistic about the threat that confronted Britain at that date. Um, Dodds kind of just really was a man of peace and didn't want any of it to happen at all. Dodds was too busy writing his, his brilliant books to, to worry too much about the rise of well, Hitler. Well, he, he was um, busy writing his books, but he was also, um, I think he wasn't like a, a, so much of a political figure. I, I feel like, I mean, Gilbert Murray was a lot more involved in that from that point of view. Um, Morris Barra um, actually befriended, there was a, a kind of a, a tragic episode in the book, he befriended uh, Adam von Trott, who um, some people may know from uh, Operation Valkyrie. Uh, and uh, so the the plot to assassinate Hitler with the with the briefcase and um, Barra. What was... if? What if, uh, Daisy? Um, I had an old friend of yours, Charles Spencer, on the show recently. He actually advised me to to, to interview you. He loves your book. Uh, he has a new book out, The White Ship, imagining how different the history of Britain would have been yeah. without the sinking of the White Ship in eleven twenty. A much more ancient what if. What if, though, Hitler had been assassinated in the 1930s? What if the Second World War hadn't broken out? How different do you think the Oxford of today would have been? The Oxford University, which um, is a sort of aggressively anti-elitist, judging at least from its uh, website and from what you say. Do you think we would still have an Oxford of Morris Bowers and E.R. Dodds and Gilbert Murray's? I don't think we do. I think that in some ways, Oxford would have stayed the same. It wouldn't have been anywhere near as progressive had the Second World War not intervened. Um, I feel that those that kind of generation would have eventually died out, um, as it did by the 1970s. And possibly Oxford would have been a lot duller, I think. Um, I feel that the kind of the, the important change happened partly because of the Second World War, it's partly because of the Second World War that, that women were able to become more prominent within the university. Uh, it's partly because of the Second World War that uh, boys were coming up from uh, state schools a lot more than they were from the, sort of the traditional schools. So it brought in, it sort of necessitated change. So it's difficult to imagine. I mean, the, the Second World War is obviously ghastly on, on every level, um, but in terms of Oxford itself, it, it did change uh, the, the the landscape of the place and it made the makeup of it quite different. It became more international and more outward looking. Although, to be fair, I mean, given Barra's Chinese upbringing, Murray's Australian and, and E.R. Dodds's Irish upbringing, it was already international. I think it's appropriate, Daisy, that the sun has come out behind you. <laughs> you spoke about a more inclusive Oxford, maybe the gods are on your side. You know about the gods, of course, because you are a student of antiquity. I have to ask you about one of your books, In the Shadow of Vesuvius, A Life of Pliny. I'm not sure if you've ever been out to Northern California, Daisy, but there's a cult of Pliny here, a cult of Pliny the Older and Younger. They're two beers that are incredibly famous from the Russian uh, River Brewing Company, uh, in Santa Rosa, California. Next time you're out here, I'll take you up there for some beer. Um, what's the difference between Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger? And I, I excuse the dumbness of that question, but I've always been curious. And now I've got you on the show as an authority on Pliny. Perhaps you can explain it. 
Well, I, I was fascinated to hear about this beer. I was completely unaware of it until this book was published in the US and people kept sending me pictures saying, look, I've got the two together with the book and the beer. And I thought, this is fantastic. I had no idea. So great legacy for for both. I mean, they, the two men were uncle and nephew. Um, the elder died in the, the tragic eruption of Vesuvius in AD 79, the one that smothered Pompeii. He was quite nearby at the time and he was curious to see it. And he was a great naturalist. He wrote an encyclopedia of ancient uh, ancients of natural history in 37 volumes. So great, great work of research. His nephew was 17 years old at the time of the eruption. He managed to survive the disaster and he became a senator and a lawyer and something like a kind of a, I guess a bit of a property developer in some ways he had properties all around Italy. Uh, this was uh, this was the model for innovation maybe appropriate for Silicon Valley and it's interesting that Pliny the Younger is the much more valuable beer for some reason or other maybe the people who invented it were classical scholars but not quite in the league of Daisy Dunn the author of not far from Brideshead, wonderful new book. It's just out today. Really, really wonderful reading. You write beautifully, not as a, a scholar, but as a, a generalist. Appropriate, I think, for that Oxford between the wars. Wonderful uh, appreciation for these characters, for the university, for the intellectual currents of the age. Congratulations, Daisy, on that. Um, and what else should people be reading uh, in late March 2022, in addition, not just to not far from Brideshead, but also in the shadow of Vesuvius, your book about Pliny. Well, I've just started reading a book which is about to come out, which is called Dinner with Joseph Johnson by Daisy Hay. And I have to say, Joseph Johnson isn't exactly a, a dinner party name uh, these days, but in the late 18th century, his dinner table was definitely the place to be because this book is about this kind of coterie of, of people that he invited. He was a publisher. He had a shop in St. Paul's churchyard in London. He hosted William Wordsworth around his table, Joseph Priestley, Mary Wollstonecraft. Wow. So it's a sort of, it's, it's, it, it, it's an introduction in an odd way to your book about Brideshead. It's kind of, I, I'm really, from it's I, even I love further from Brideshead, but in that same vein. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I like books which kind of come at sort of familiar topics from less familiar angles. Um, and I think this is this is one of those books and similar sort of in, in what I've tried to do in my own book. And I, I read um, one of the author, Daisy Hayes, earlier biographies, which was about the Prime Minister Disraeli and his wife. And I really enjoyed that. So I thought I'd pick this up as a kind of group biography of a Another Daisy. Do you know her? I don't know her personally, um, but it's it's a really good read so far. Uh, and another one actually set similarly by coincidence in St. Paul's Churchyard in London. It's a book called In the Shadow of St. Paul's Cathedral mm. by Margaret Willis. And it's, I mean, obviously I think St. Paul's is iconic, particularly when you're looking at the war, that fantastic, that photograph of St. Paul's Cathedral still yeah. standing, you know, when everything else around it is absolute devastation um but I, I hadn't really given much thought to the land it stood in and this is kind of a, a history of the churchyards the, the publishers the theatres everything else that kind of grew up around it in time so um yeah so both the books I'm reading at the moment are, are kind of tied to St Paul's which is interesting well I hope your next book Daisy uh is about Morris Barra and modern computers i think that would be a fascinating book uh, given, given that photograph on his wikipedia page i never realized that morris barra had ever been shown a computer i'd be curious to to, to hear what he said about it uh but congratulations on your your wonderful new book Thank you. uh not far from 
Brideshead, Oxford Between the Wars, just out today. And finally, um, Daisy, uh, who's in charge in late March 2022? Who runs the world these days? Well, I hate to say it, um, but I would say it's still COVID-19. I think certainly politically, and I'd say culturally too, there's no one that has the global reach that this bloody virus has and it continues to rule people's lives. And I think I think to myself that if, if any politician had the same ability to infiltrate pe- people um, and sort of infect them with our ideology, it would be quite an alarming thing. So I think we can pretend this pandemic's over, we can sort of do see part, partly through fatigue, partly through fear, but I feel like this is still influencing political decisions, cultural decisions, and kind of you know decisions worldwide in a way that nothing else is.